Palestinians, the Israelis, uh, and uh, most maybe most prominently, and many others are trying to use cell phone location data to track people's movement, to trace the spread of the disease, and perhaps to try to limit the spread of the disease. Um, I see increasing vocalization of privacy concerns uh, with this sort of thing um, from, I think, in some ways, both the right and the left. Uh, and so I sort of see the usual debates playing out, but with the sort of unusual alignment of a potential right-left coalition like we've seen in other areas recently. Episode 307 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government from the privacy of our homes. Uh, uh, the views expressed here, uh, I should say, don't reflect the views of uh, uh, Skype or Zencaster or our clients, our uh, uh institutions uh, and in particular to the uh, uh, family members who are now forced to listen to them uh, while we uh, uh, record this. Uh, today I'm going to interview Jason Healy who's the longtime researcher of cyber military affairs uh, and it teaches at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. Uh, but before we do that, uh, we're going to have the news roundup. Uh, I've asked Alan Cohn to uh, uh, join us. He's uh, my partner here at Steptoe, uh, and he co-leads our blockchain and national security practices, but we'll be asking him about some of the things that he knows about from his time at the Department of Homeland Security. Matthew Hyman is going to be with us uh, from the National Security Institute, then formerly with the National Security Division at the Justice Department. Uh, David Chris, uh, co-founder of Culper Partners. Uh, and formerly in charge of the National Security Division at the Justice Department is going to be here. Uh, fan favorite Nick Weaver from the Computer Science uh, uh, Department at UC Berkeley is also here. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Uh, so uh, we can't uh, uh, ignore COVID-19 twice uh, in uh, two weeks, uh, but there is a tech angle increasing Increasingly, it looks as though uh, if there are no atheists in foxholes, there are also damn few privacy advocates in pandemics. Uh, and uh, uh, government after government is using the location devices and capabilities of cell phones to uh, monitor uh, people for the uh, coronavirus crisis. Uh, David, what, what's happening? Well, as you say, I mean, many, many governments, the Israelis uh, and uh, most maybe most prominently and many others are trying to use cell phone location data to track people's movement, to trace the spread of the disease and perhaps to try to limit the spread of the disease. Um, I have to take issue a little bit with your premise, though. I, I see increasing vocalization of privacy concerns uh, with this sort of thing. Um from, I think, in some ways, both the right and the left. Uh, we don't want the cure to be worse than the disease, is a paraphrase of, of messaging coming out of the Trump administration in certain ways, although mostly in the economic sector rather than the uh, privacy sector. And you see civil society groups uh, already you know, lodging objections and raising concerns about how this is the nose under the camel's tent. And even if it might be a good trade 
of privacy against safety to allow tracking of location for disease vector management, uh, it will inevitably lead to widespread location tracking for all other purposes, which is very nefarious. Uh, and so I sort of see the usual debates playing out, but with the sort of unusual alignment of a potential right-left coalition like we've seen in other areas recently. A lot of this is just made worse by the relative uncertainty of the data that we have and, and our understanding of the disease. And, um, and you see it playing out in the economic sector, in the political sector with our usual toxicity, and in the justice sector uh, with respect to privacy, tracking, emergency powers, and uh, also, of course, criminals exploiting anxiety to commit fraud and theft of various sorts. So this is just one aspect of a broader array of, of uh, echoes from this thing. And I guess I see it, it looks to me like a very familiar debate, but with a slightly unusual lineup of the sort we've seen more recently. Well, on a slightly unusual uh, outcome in that people could die if we uh, pick a privacy-friendly uh, but uh, ineffective uh, uh, approach to this thing. It looks to me as though, Nick, as though there's two basic ideas that they're pursuing. One is to say when we quarantine you, when we tell you to stay home uh, because you have the disease, we want to make sure you stay home. And so we're going to use your cell phone uh, and its location data and a variety of other tools to make sure that you are in that location. Uh, and the other tool that is less um, uh, widely used but is being used is to say, where have you been and have you been near somebody uh, who had the uh, who, who has now tested positive, um, so that we can warn you or quarantine you? Um, those are two pretty different uh, um, uses because one, I, it seems to me, if the government tells you you have to stay in your house and we're gonna we want to enforce it. This is a logical way to enforce it, and I think you could, you know, you've got implicit consent from the person uh, to provide his location because otherwise you'll uh, uh, put him in a tent in the desert. Um, uh, but tracking people who don't know they're being tracked for purposes of telling them that they might have been exposed is a it's a different set of technology and a different set of considerations. Yes. And so the first one is also it's different level of precision. So the first one you can do with just basically cell phone power dump. So you could easily do that using existing authorities. You just get a subpoena or a warrant for somebody and do that. Um, the contact. Actually, tracing, I think you just you just tell them they have to consent and then and then you don't even need that. Uh, um, yeah. And the similar, it allows you to go on a more population basis, whether the people are actually being sensible about shelter in place orders. Um, Italy has been seeing a fair amount of violations and the cell phone data tells you that. For contract tracing, which is going to be essential going forward. So after the lockdowns reduce the caseload, it's going to be test, trace, and everybody wear a mask in public. And in order to do that, you want to do, you need a low level and you need to be able to do the contact tracing. And so there's a fair bit of techno utopianism going, could we use phones for that? There's 
a problem though. In order to do this, you need really fine location data, GPS, on a fine-grained basis. And putting that into a central database is going to be a nightmare. While trying to do it in a distributed fashion looks plausible, that requires opt-in and that requires infrastructure that's in place. So my suspicion going forward is sell power data to enforce quarantine, stay at home and monitor that. And the notion of contact tracing is going to be techno-utopianism for uh, several months, but will then be available basically in the phone OS with some privacy-preserving mechanisms. How much value would there be in using uh, the fact that your phone is constantly reaching out to find other Bluetooth and other uh, um, uh, Wi-Fi uh, systems so that you actually could, could determine whether there are other people connecting to the Wi-Fi or aware of the Wi-Fi because it's, it's in their neighborhood? At that point, you're, you're talking about pretty fine-grained uh, um, location. Yes. Um, Bluetooth in particular might be pretty good for that, is just a notion of fingerprints of Bluetooth devices you've seen, fingerprint matching um, to carry it out. And but you could probably, probably not do it. Doable now. No, not doable now, doable a year from now. And. Um, one of the things to always remember is pandemics will happen. Yeah. Stuart, don't you think that the one way in which this will play out without prejudice to Nick's practical assessment of whether and to what extent it can actually function, that TSA pre-check in the next couple of years, if not sooner, will get an additional element in which you not only provide your fingerprints and your iris or whatever else, uh, but that either directly to the government or through some kind of private contractor, you agree to install this uh, tracker app on your phone as a condition of breezing through the airport. Uh, that seems to me a, a real possibility for the future, and lots of people will probably voluntarily can, uh, give up their location information for the benefit of that. Wouldn't you think that most people, if, 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 if told... By the way, if you install this app, we can tell you if you might die and uh, uh, start treating you uh, and protecting uh, uh, the people that you work with uh, uh, would install it anyway, because you kind of want to know whether you've been exposed, don't you? Seems to, seems to I me, I think a lot is, of people will make that trade. I mean, yeah, uh, 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 this, this, uh, there's a, there's a legal problem here, isn't there? There's a, there's a problem getting location information from people who use it. So the irony is that uh, uh, Google and Facebook could say, "Would you like to buy some chloroquine? Because we think <laughs> you've been exposed." Uh, based on the location data we have, uh, and they could they could do that or not as they chose, uh, but the government couldn't get the same information. Not without some kind of consent theory, probably, or or or, yeah, or a warrant, uh, or yeah. maybe I actually I I, I wonder if um, the authorities that are given to the public health service of each state, which include warrants and certainly include they include the ability to order quarantine to do a whole bunch of very intrusive things, it would be hard for the Googles and uh, uh, Facebooks of the world to say. 
oh, you don't have a subpoena. It doesn't say subpoena here in this public health law. It just says we can lock people up for as long as we want. And that's not the same. So we're not going to obey your order. That, that strikes me as maybe legally justifiable, but uh, hard to sustain in the long run. Uh, uh, so it could be that if 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 this was something that you know a Maine or Michigan or Minnesota wanted to uh, to try, they could probably do it. And someplace that hasn't really done a lot of tracking and doesn't have a lot of infections yet, uh, and has the tests to actually do the uh, identification. I can imagine us seeing that since this is very much uh, localized in states. Uh, well, the privacy party is not over. FISA, uh, I, I have to say, this totally discredits the notion of uh, having sunsets on important national security laws. Uh, we we have been kicking the can for FISA renewal twice by, you know, 60 days or so, um, thinking, well, surely it will be a better time to talk about it next time it comes up. Well, and of course, it has come up. The uh, authorities uh, that were expiring have expired, and uh, no one has a clear idea how we're going to actually uh, restore them. Uh, Matthew? Yeah, no, that's a fair summary. I mean, the Senate last Monday agreed to a 77-day extension. Of course, the House hasn't acted on it. So the three authorities that expired, so Lone Wolf Provision, uh, Roving Wiretap, and the Business Records Provision, also you know, under what some people call 215, are all gone right now. And our intelligence community and the Department of Justice cannot pursue uh, counterterrorism subjects and espionage subjects uh, with those tools right now. Yeah, it's, it, it's a shame. Uh, the, the House had sent forward a compromise bill that was meant to be a longer term fix with some, you know, probably 10 civil liberties privacy tweaks, uh, uh, but things that didn't interfere with uh, um, national security. So naturally, Mike Lee and Rand Paul wanted something that would interfere with national security, uh, um, namely complete and total protection, as I read it, for all Americans from being targeted without a warrant, uh, without a law enforcement warrant, or for having any of this information used against them in a criminal case. So if you're an American thinking about spying, this is the time to do it. As soon as they get those things in, you're going to you're going to be free if people start out with FISA uh, warrants uh, uh, to uh, to catch you. Uh, they won't be able to use any of that uh, in court. Stuart, don't blame Typhoid Rand for this. The only reason that happened is because Trump went around his attorney general. Barr liked this bill, and then Trump had a rage tweet, and that's what caused this whole thing to screw up. So well, for once, don't blame the typhoid rant. No, I, I, it, 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 he wouldn't He wouldn't have done it without rant uh, uh, encouraging him. Uh, and we should say, you know, uh, Senator Paul is now positive for coronavirus, and given that he was attacked by some nutcase uh, uh, and broke several uh, ribs, uh, it probably has some compromises to his lungs that that make this something to worry about, and we should all uh, uh, keep him in our thoughts and prayers. Except that let's also 
criticize him for he got himself tested. He knew he was in contact with people and he went to the Senate gym anyway. This is irresponsible behavior. If you Stur think you're sick, stay away. If you're waiting on a test, stay away. We've abused everybody in this uh, d uh, debate, uh, but the fact is that uh, uh, Paul and Lee said uh, we will not allow the uh, House bill to pass, um, a, and we won't. We can s prevent any vote. Uh, that meant the uh, deadline was missed, uh, and uh, uh, the only solution that uh, uh, the leadership of the Senate was able to come up with was to pass the 77-day solution. Uh, giving them a promise that there'd be a debate uh, uh, in 77 days. Uh, and of course, the House was out of session, so we're just stuck here. Uh, um, I, I, I'm going to re revive my proposal. I think if there's anything that needs a sunset, it's privacy laws. Privacy, the privacy, you know, our sense of what's private and what's not changes over a matter of years, let alone decades, uh, and things that seem like a great privacy violation um, uh, 10 years ago are going to seem like just life in five years. Uh, and why would we want to make them punishable by a, a felony if uh, everybody's doing it and nobody cares? Uh, and so I think uh, we've totally missed uh, tuned our privacy and national security balance by uh, sunsetting capabilities that we're certainly going to need in 10 years uh, and not sunsetting um, kind of creepy feelings uh, that uh, will be gone by the time we um, uh, reach the next decade. All right. Well, that's uh, uh, that's a rant and a half. Uh, all right, uh, Matthew, uh, this is kind of astonishing and, 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 and uh, nobody's quite sure who should be gloating over it or uh, ashamed of it, but uh, the U.S. has completely dropped the charges, the kind of central storytelling charges of Russian interference in the election uh, uh, that they had brought against uh, uh, the Internet Research Agency. Uh, um, uh, this was brought by Mueller's uh, team and then was being carried on by kind of a mix of Mueller alums and uh, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, and now they've just given up. How come? Well, they gave up because they sued these two companies, uh, and the company actually started doing what normal litigants do, which is pressing the government for discovery, making the prosecution difficult. And strangely enough, in the government's filing where they filed a motion to dismiss the case, which the judge granted, they said, well, you know, one of the other reasons for dismissing the case is we don't really have any effective way to punish these companies, even if we prevail in convicting them, which it strikes me that all of this was known prior to charging these companies. And so it almost feels like, it looks like, and I don't, obviously I wasn't on the inside, that they, it was a ready fire aim situation where they ran off with this idea of suing these companies uh, and didn't think about the consequences of it. Now, to be fair, they're also suing, or I'm sorry, they're prosecuting 13 individuals, which that makes more sense. But it seems to me that the government got itself in the briar patch and had no good plan for how to get out. I, I think it's also perfectly plausible that uh, the Mars team said, we have to tell this story. Why don't we tell it? in the form of an indictment because 
we're never going to be able to prosecute these guys anyway, so we can just tell the story the way we want it and not worry too much about how the litigation is going to play out. And uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, defendants, a corporate defendant who really has nothing at, uh, at risk if they show up, uh, showed up and started uh, poking holes in the government's case and uh, gray mailing them, uh, uh, all of which would have been quite predictable if – uh, Mueller's team had actually expected to litigate this, but I think they didn't. And so the the attraction of being able to tell the story in this nice, coherent way uh, overrode a judgment that somebody who had uh, broader responsibilities for the government might not have made. I don't. I don't know, Stuart. I, I'd slightly disagree because I think ultimately this is somewhat embarrassing for the department. Um, even if that was their intent, I don't think it reads that way in the headlines of our major papers. I think they had other opportunities to tell the story, certainly through the Mueller report. And so, uh, to me, this just looks like a you know a bad decision, a waste of the court's time, and ultimately embarrassing for the government when it sort of tucks its tail between its legs and says, "Oh, we give up." Yeah. There's there, there's a little hint in here that something was there was a new classification decision which may have some impact. Uh, right. There's always a debate before you bring a case between the prosecutors and the intelligence agencies about what the consequences of for classified information will be, uh, and it may be that. Uh, the Mueller prosecutors said, yeah, we're not so worried about the compromise of that information, but that uh, Bill Barr's attorney, uh, the Justice Department was more worried about it. Yeah. And to be fair, um, these classification issues and the judgments made at a given point in time can be fluid. Circumstances can change. And maybe that's what was going on. And that's the side of the story we're not reading right now. But um, you know, that certainly seems to have been part of the calculus. You know, there's a hint of that in the uh, Marcy Wheeler post on this. Uh, she she blogs at EmptyWheel.net, and she's uh, never shy about digging all the way into the details. She's got a remarkable capacity to process huge amounts of information. She's got some discussion and speculation of that. It's also interesting that she rebuts sort of both the claim on the right that this is an evidence that the whole Russia conspiracy was nonsense, but also the claim that's being made in some circles on the left that this is Bill Barr sabotaging something. Uh, she thinks it's neither of those and is is very much in keeping with this idea that something shifted in the classification and they had SEPA problems. And that's what ultimately caused them to throw in the towel. There's annual reporting obligations to Congress on the cases that, despite SEPA, don't get get uh, successfully brought. Uh, there's usually a handful of those every year, and they're sometimes important cases. So there may be some more assessments from DOJ from this as part of that annual reporting um, in the long run. We may not see it publicly, but the reporting will probably have to get done. Yeah. I, I think it's also uh, just a, sorry, Stuart, it's a reminder too that when it comes to national security and using criminal courts to prosecute, uh, you know, in support of national security aims, it's a really tricky business because of the classification issues. And because what every defendant does is they put push the government uh, to almost a breaking point, which they certainly got to in this case, which is what do you want more? Do you want to prosecute us or do you want to reveal all your sources and methods? And that's always a tough call. Lesson on this one uh, is um, you try aiming before you do the naming and the shaming. Let me let me move this along if I can, uh, uh, because uh, 
digital revolution has leaked a bunch of internal documents showing that the uh, um, Russian intelligence uh, office, the FSB, used to be the KGB, um, is actually running a procurement to build some massive DDoS weapon. Yeah. Uh, 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 I guess my question is, how come this wasn't on WikiLeaks? Right. So, Stuart, this is a story that warms the hearts of, uh, I think, current and former U.S. national security officials who believe that our adversaries, um, if we're still permitted to think of Russia that way, uh, you know, do lots and lots of stuff that, um, because they live in repressive societies, never gets outed. So I think for, for at least many U.S. national security officials, it's a delight to see this Russian hacker group breaching a FSB contractor's uh, digital security and cyber hacking them to reveal a big DDoS plan in which they would take control of the devices of high bandwidth users, those in particular who had uh, streaming video connections, uh, and then uh, hijack that to build a big botnet uh, for unit 64829 of the FSB uh, and uh, under the code name Fronton, F-R-O-N-T-O-N, uh, and uh, do various nefarious DDoS attacks. Um, it's apparently the third time that this group has uh, hacked FSB or FSB-related information, but um, but it is interesting to see the you know the efforts of uh, adversary security services doing a lot of stuff like this and you're right it is notable <laughs> i guess this didn't show up on wikileaks uh, what do no, you know because they're in the pocket of the russian uh, uh, fsb yeah um uh, but I, you know, I, I'm kind of sad uh, that John Podesta isn't isn't uh, tweeting much because uh, uh, this is his revenge, sort of. And I'd like to yeah. see him tweet a request for uh, uh, for the FSB's borscht recipe as well. <laughs> well, it goes around; it comes around. <laughs> exactly. So more cor coronavirus tech news. Uh, CISA, which is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, uh, um, has issued a bunch of uh, memos and letters uh, in its capacity, not with, of the C, but of the I, the infrastructure security. Uh, uh, they have a whole list of uh, long ago identified uh, critical infrastructure capabilities inside the U.S. that need to be protected above all else. And now they're getting to use it in uh, the coronavirus uh, um, uh, situation, mainly because of the lockdowns. Alan, uh, you worked on a lot of this stuff when you were at DHS, uh, both when uh, you were working for me and afterwards when uh, uh, they had the good sense to promote you and get rid of me. What's what? What does all this flurry of activity mean for the private sector? Right. So uh, this is a, a kind of follow on from lessons learned from uh, earlier disasters. You might remember in Katrina when private contractors who maintained the repeaters for the Orleans Parish, uh, for Orleans Parish and the New Orleans Police Department get, couldn't get through uh, barricade lines to do something as simple as, as fill generators with gas. So CISA has issued a, mem uh, a document, a guidance document, that kind of tracks through a number of the infrastructure sectors, laying out what they consider uh, to be the key roles within a number of these sectors where 
those individuals need to be able to go to work um, despite stay-at-home uh, orders from state governors. So this is meant to be to inform both states and local governments in crafting those state those stay-at-home orders in terms of who to exempt, as well as industry to try to figure out and sort among those work their, their workforce who really needs to come in uh, to work despite a stay-at-home order. So I remember for years people would call me up uh, and say, "How do I make sure I'm not?" critical infrastructure, because it's bound right. to be bad news uh, the, if the government is paying attention to me. Uh, uh, but in this case, it's actually probably a good thing to be critical infrastructure. It is. And therein lies the, the challenge, because, of course, CISA and really the federal government doesn't have any directive authority in this area, um, the, certainly with respect to just infrastructure workers generally. Um, really, the police power um, and the police powers that applies to public health rests with the governors and local governments to the extent of the way that the states um, do home rule and, and things of that nature. But um, so there's a potential conflict there between the, um, the guidance and wishes of the, uh, of the federal government and the, the police powers of the state. There's, a, there's in particular a a real tension point that's likely to emerge with a subset of, uh, of the workers identified in this guidance, and that's workers in the defense industrial base who are working on uh, what are called um, D-pass rated contracts or contracts that have already been rated under the Defense Production Act as priority contracts. Um, and so the Defense Department. Oh, but otherwise, makes a lot of from use the point this. of view of the the state, they just look like uh, some guy who's uh, uh, making electronic subcomponents uh, in a um, a small factory in the, the San Fernando Valley. And it goes the other way, which, if you remember back in two thousand three, two thousand four, all the challenges of the popcorn stand in Indiana being critical, and the governors. And the, and the federal government being skeptical, now it's the other way, where there's a concern that the federal government is opening too many. There can be a concern that the federal government is trying to open too many holes in the state stay-at-home regime using the infrastructure sector designations as a mechanism. Yeah, I, I, I'm guessing there isn't time for people to do run a political calculus and decide they're better off standing up to the Pentagon uh, uh, in an effort to enforce a tougher lockdown. Uh, but you can see how this this could turn in, you know, six weeks from now, this could turn into a, a, a serious issue. And especially as we get more contracts rated under the Defense Production uh, Act, not just by DOD, but by the other agencies that have authorities to rate, including HHS, uh, USDA, uh, and others that, that are being encouraged to go ahead and, and rate contracts for essential things. Ideally, really, you know, the federal government and you know, the governors potentially acting through someone like the National Governors Association can come to both a, uh, an agreement and a process for revision that can then be disseminated out and would would likely then largely be followed by uh, by the governors and others. Um, but ideally, those parties are working together rather than just throwing documents at each other. 
but for now, I guess there, there, there is a significant possibility that there's going to be uh, at least a small lobbying land rush uh, at these agencies as people who think they should keep their business open uh, go in and ask for decisions that they're critical in you know, kind of questionable circumstances. Yeah. And on the flip side, there's just too many businesses out there. Um, that are performing uh, important or essential activities that, for the federal government to keep track of. Um, ah, so, yeah, that's right. And if they exempt them all, uh, there is no lockdown. Now, oh, this is going to be and, and okay. If, so this yeah. is definitely worth watching. And we'll be watching it. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll we'll bring you back. Uh, meanwhile, Russia is doing what Russia does, uh, spreading uh, uh, the uh, rumor that uh, the whole. Uh, coronavirus problem was created in a, uh, an American lab. Uh, uh, Matthew, uh, uh, how serious is this? Well, it's I, I don't know how serious it is. Um, I found it fascinating that the one that's leading the charge pointing out uh, Russia's bad behavior is the EU External Action Service, which is essentially the EU's foreign policy apparatus. Uh, but yeah, they point out that the Russians, through their uh, various propaganda outlets are saying that this is a U.S. created bioweapon. Um, the obvious response to be would be, and it's kind of a sad one, is if if it's a U.S. plot, we've certainly had it explode in our hands. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I, it is. Look, I I I I'm I'm harsh on the EU uh, when they deserve it, which is 98 uh, percent of the time. But you know, uh, God bless them. They uh, uh, they're more credible claiming that this is bogus information about the United States than the U.S. government would be. And uh, it's nice to have them uh, uh, ride in and uh, call BS on uh, the Russians. Uh, There's also significant research showing that this looks like very much natural evolution, not human engineered as well. So the rumors of the China lab, US lab, et cetera, it's all bull. Yeah. What about the Norsk Hydro attack? Is that BS too? Uh, uh, there's a, a Tragos report that said that it was, might be a fake ransomware attack, and we've seen a couple of those where it was uh, questionable whether it was really a ransomware attack, uh, uh, and that um, it was designed to uh, uh, to shut Norsk Hydro down, which would suggest that it might be a nation state rather than just some criminal. It's really hard to tell that the best deniable ransomware attack um, can be used as cover for nation state disruption. The more important point of the article is that if you want deniable rather than implausibly deniable, like not Petya, you could do it. Well, and the other thing that I noticed, Drago said, uh, we don't have a lot of data here because uh, we think that there is increasingly a reluctance to reveal enough information to allow attribution of an attack. Because if you're Norsk Hydro and you provide information that leads people to believe that it was a nation state attack, your insurance is worthless because now it's a, uh, it's an act of war. Uh, and uh, uh, that really is a problem because uh, uh, the attribution depends at least – 80% on information that's in the hands of the company that's been attacked. Yep. 
Okay, and uh, uh, Lewandowski is going to jail probably, uh, my guess is, a couple of years uh, for stealing trade secrets uh, from Google on autom- uh, uh, on self-driving cars. David, uh, any surprises in this? Uh, it, was it too good a deal for him, too harsh uh- a deal? Well, I mean, I think it's a it, just on the numbers, it's a good deal in the sense that he was charged with 33 counts and he's pled guilty to one and the other 32 are going away. But uh, on the other side of the ledger, uh, the range for his uh, one charge is, as you say, 24 to 30 months. So, you know, that will be um, significant for him. Um, it's, you know, you, you never know exactly who's getting the better part of the deal here. I, I suspect he would not plead unless they really had him. Uh, and he he specifies the document that he downloaded after he left Google in 2016 uh, and before he was, or I think maybe during the time he was starting to get ready to work for Uber. Uh, this story is interesting just because it highlights um, the interaction between the civil and criminal justice systems in the high tech world, because this started when Google sued Uber in 2017 for conspiracy with Lewandowski to steal trade secrets. And Lewandowski in the civil proceedings took the Fifth Amendment, which I think annoyed the judge, caused him to refer it to the U.S. Attorney's Office. They may very well, I think, have had a criminal investigation going, uh, which is why he pled the Fifth. Uh, And then in August, he got 33 charges and then more recently pled to one. He's also filed for bankruptcy. uh, So, you know, the financial consequences of this for him are, I think, a little bit uncertain. But he did agree to pay Google's costs, which are reported to be $750,000. So anyway, we'll see, but it's an interesting wrap-up of a story that's been carried uh, on the Cyber Law Podcast for a while now and and been in the news. So I I just have one question. Uh, um, How much weight would the judge's referral get in that context? Would they really open a case um, once they've gotten a referral? I mean, there is, there, there obviously is some reason to believe that a crime has been committed, uh, 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 but uh, they might have been inclined not to pursue it as criminal because it was such a big civil case. Do you right. think that the judge's referral actually made a difference? Um, you know, it's hard to know without being inside of it, but it, it might have. I mean, he had a predicate to plead the fifth in the first instance. So obviously he had a concern about uh, criminal consequences for him. Um, you know, U.S. attorney's offices generally take referrals from judges quite seriously. Um, but I would like to believe that they would do an independent analysis uh, of the thing and, and, you know, make judgments using their traditional criteria and, and not out of any concern that they want to curry favor with the judge or whatever. Um, you know, you just you can't tell unless you uh, do a Freedom of Information Act and and successfully get get into their internal email and decision making. And Stuart, I, yeah, I urge you to, <laughs> to consider doing that. <laughs> but, um, you know. But I, I think they probably um, were looking at this and they may well have decided to sort of sit it out and let the civil proceedings play out, uh, figuring they can come in on the back end of that with the benefit of whatever was learned uh, in those proceedings. So that's certainly a plausible scenario as far as I can tell. All right. Thanks. Thanks to you all. Let's uh, let's turn now to our interview with Jason Healy. Uh, Jason is a senior research scholar and adjunct professor at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. He's written a couple of papers recently, both on 
Cyber Command's persistent engagement doctrine in cyberspace. Uh, uh, and that's what we're going to be talking about now. So, Jay, uh, in addition to all this stuff that you've written recently, you've got a a long history of actually implementing some of this stuff. Uh, uh, I think you helped set up Cyber Command uh, at the beginning, back in the 90s, uh, went to the White House and uh, uh, worked for the uh, uh, Cyber Czar, as he, well, he wasn't really, never was a Cyber Czar, but uh, worked in the cybersecurity uh, mm-hmm. office. Uh, um, so you've, you, you, you know what this is like on the ground uh, and what Cyber Command is trying to do. Um, and, and let me just start out, because frankly, I've always been a little puzzled by the phrase persistent engagement uh, yeah, right? uh, or defending forward. Uh, I, what, is it, what does it really mean? What is Cyber Command actually doing that's different as a result of this turn of phrase? And that's what's really funny about this active defense and the rest. We've been talking about this since at least 1996, right? I had helped set up this first cyber command. It was Joint Task Force Computer Network Defense. And some agency, I can't remember whom, threw in that they were going to do active defense in the charter. And this was 1998. And I was at Air Staff Headquarters Pentagon. And we said, you can't say that unless you're going to define the term. And here we are, you know, 22 years later, and we're still trying to define the terms. So what we're doing now with Defend Forward is they're trying to put some meat on that bone. And so what the international relations scholars that came up with this, and and also Cyber Command to some degree, they're rooting this difference in saying, look, cyberspace is interconnected. And this is the most important thing for us to keep in mind. And so that our normal notions about defense and the rest are based on when an army or an armed attack crosses a border. So they say because it's interconnected, there's constant contact. Everyone is touching everyone else's stuff. So you can't think of sovereignty or crossing borders or um, or even deterrence to a significant degree. The only way to respond, and they're quite pretty categorical about this, is you've got to be constantly slapping everyone else's hands away, right? We're all trying to drink each other's milkshakes, and so you're always trying to to play defense and swap this away. So meaning that um, no matter where the adversary is, whether they're at home in their own network, out and about in uh, neutral countries' networks, buying mm-hmm. up capability, uh, hacking uh, uh, machines that they can use for uh, for C2, C3, uh, uh, or in our network, no matter where they are, we're going to be in their face, in their, uh, watching them as they type in the code. Absolutely. And we can get in later. Like Some see this as deterrent. Some of these see this as offense and aggressive, like Bolton was really saying, yeah, we're going to be aggressive. But at root, this is meant to be a defensive strategy. And so, and the international relations scholars are, are, have been, I think, a bit clearer than U.S. Cyber Command on this and the different ways that this is supposed to restrain the adversaries. Um, the main way is friction. I'll talk about that more in a second. But they also do talk about deterrence and then this concept of tacit bargaining. The main way, though, is friction. Look, everyone's drinking each other milkshakes. We're all trying to slap each other's um, away uh, from our touching our stuff. So the main way they're seeing this acting with more agility and speed and this persistent engagement the defend forward is first to just disrupt their operations. 
right? That's not deterrence. It's just, look, if they're going to oh, mess with um, the elections again, or if North Korea is going to do another Sony, that we get in and we frustrate their operations. We're going to cause this friction. So now, that, might, that, mean, that might mean DDoSing the uh, uh, Internet Research Agency, which they've pretty much admitted um, I doing. I don't know. I mean, to me, that's not necessarily involved because they were doing – they weren't really hacking. They were doing ah, right. um, information operations. But the concept is similar. Um, it's better if we were like you know watching um, uh, North Koreans and they were going to do another Sony or if Iran was going to do another – uh, Ababil style denial of service attacks on the U.S. banks that we get in and we disrupt their infrastructure, right? And so one, we're going to disrupt them. Two, they're going to have to shift those resources and rebuild that infrastructure, right? So not only do we stop them, but if we take down their infrastructure, they have to spend resources to rebuild it, and that's going to drain them in the medium term. And then also in the medium term, they're going to have to shift some of their resources to defense. Right, so instead of being ninety-five percent offense, five percent defense, they're going to have to be more like sixty percent defense, forty percent offense, um, or something like that. Um, and so they'll have fewer resources to come at us. So that that makes all the sense in the world. Uh, you, yeah, you, absolutely. Uh, you 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 want to slow them down. You want them to spend more on defense because we're spending a boatload on on, on defense yeah. uh, and isn't doing us as much good as we'd like. So uh, forcing them to spend it uh, is is a win. And uh, so one of right. the things that raises is um, let's let, let's take the Iranian attacks. Uh, if you want to take down their infrastructure, you know they're they're not stupid enough to have a DDoS infrastructure that is entirely located inside Iran where it could easily be uh, quarantined. They're, they're going out and infecting machines and then using those machines uh, uh, in Thailand and Malaysia and uh, uh, Ukraine and uh, Boston. Uh, and Cyber Command then is, if they're taking down the infrastructure, are doing stuff in a whole bunch of uh, jurisdictions that might not take it well. Yeah, and so this is the – and I love how you pivoted there, right? We can look at this argument of friction and say, boy, that makes a lot of sense. It has a lot of logic. How could we not do that if we were seeing Sony or Russia or Iran getting to attack? Why wouldn't we get into disrupt? To say that that's escalatory, that we're stopping them from punching us, I, I don't. I don't particularly agree with that. Um, but but let me say one thing as I transition to to the second part of your issue is doing that friction, causing the shift more to defense, makes much more sense if off if it's relatively expensive to build offensive capabilities, right? If it's going to if they can just shift a bit more resources and rebuild, those other parts may might not make as much sense. So yeah, if there were a limited number of IoT sense. devices on the internet, right. uh, that would that would <laughs> right. make a lot of sense. <laughs> like like your story with the Russian, you know, with the Russians looking to to build their IoT network for DDoS, right? That makes a lot more sense if it's hard to build offense. That's not what we generally tell ourselves about this, and so this is the difference between something that makes sense tactically versus us escalating into now a national strategy and an academic theory of stability. So you're right. We would be having to get in to systems in Thailand, Malaysia, Boston, um, and you know Max Meets um, now at ETH Zurich has written a lot about look. We want to cause friction, 
but we might be causing more friction with our allies um, than, than we're going to be causing against um, the people that are actually causing us the harm. Mike Schmidt and others have written um, that to, to pursue this, the U.S. has basically had to say, eh, there's really no such thing as sovereignty in cyberspace. Now, that may or may not be true, but we're rooting that not in, well, what makes sense for the new information age that's going to be being the next hundred years of our future, and we're rooting it largely in arguments of law enforcement and national defense. It might, in fact, be the right answer. Um, I think it, it might be like too, I, I, to it. but it, 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 what you're saying is, yeah, maybe that's the right answer because we didn't have any other good answer, and uh, it's a little whiny for the Germans to say, excuse me, you seem to be curing some of our machines of their malware. We're, we're offended in principle. You know, kind of say, yeah, you know, give it a break. Uh, uh, yeah. But uh, at the same time, uh, it, it isn't it isn't clear that that's a philosophy that um, we really want to embrace across the board because, you know, uh, things could start happening in our networks that we're a little unhappy about that are less um, uh, healthy than curing uh, uh, IoT devices of their security flaws. Absolutely, right? I mean, it would be a much better argument on our point of saying, well, we have to be the ones to go and secure these systems from the and kick the Russians out of these um, of these systems. And I've even heard um, from some in this crowd, from the persistent engagers, let's call them, that we even need to be out if we know the Russians are using X, Y, and Z vulnerability. That the the U.S. should be patching X, Y, and that U.S. Cyber Command should be going out and patch X, Y, and Z vulnerability wherever we see that in Germany, Malaysia. Um, it makes a lot more sense if the U.S. security didn't really suck itself, right? Yes. To, to, yeah, they, to exactly. say that we've Call got... me when you've, when you've patched all your machines and all the Pentagon <laughs> right. machines, yes. Uh, on the other hand, you can see that happening, can't you? To Isn't insist that... on a unilateral right, and right. we are insisting almost unilateral, to go to go get in, 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 in other people's systems um, when, when the security is so bad, he really sucks. And it also matters that this has happened during the Trump administration when the trust that we've got from our other allies and partners, the response might be completely different if this, if this, had, if this had happened five years ago. And we must include those political realities uh, when we're thinking about military strategy. Yeah, uh, although it, the, the, as a fact, practical matter, it wouldn't have happened five years ago because uh, the, the, the Obama NSC and the president uh, and the uh, uh, science office, they were all uh, determined that it wouldn't happen uh, and uh, and that really that nothing would happen uh, with Cyber Command. That, 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 uh, and the result of that was, as General Nakasone said, uh, uh, nobody fears us uh, because mm. – uh, uh, Cyber Command was so bound up in the interagency, it really couldn't do anything mm -hmm. surprising at all. Yeah, I mean, I uh, that I think that's a fair point. That's certainly a fair point when it comes to to um, the lack of activity during the, the Obama side. But let's point out the lack of activity in forceful response, and we've certainly the United States has certainly shown restraint when it comes to Title Ten. We have had a absolute lack. Of restraint when it comes to Title 50, when it comes to intelligence and covert action. Um, and what gets me is a lot of the, um, oh my gosh, look at what's happening to poor old United States, um, including from real national security hawks that know that we were predator long before we were prey. Um, and so 
at, now that I'm an academic and not a practitioner, right? I want to be looking at the back and forth over time of who did what. And deterrence and the rest of this works very different way, differently when our adversaries are sure they're hitting back, not hitting first. And a lot of them are correct about that. So it's not just they don't fear us. Um, they think, we're, we, they think we did it first, and, and so they're, they're free to do it to us. Oh, um, I'm not saying free. I'm not saying free. Um, right. right. I mean, there's, there's got to be this back and forth. If, if there's anything that – two things that bug me, Stuart. One is the uh, – you know, we see some of our adversaries that really – you just wonder if they forgot exactly how good U.S. intelligence has been through cyberspace in these years. And it's almost like they're taking this personally, like, oh, my God, China's doing this. We have to get them to suffer and to pay. Whereas we were doing similar things, right? I mean, I'm not trying to make a moral equivalence, but like, hey, let's let's calm down on the on the hyperventilation here, and let's look at this um, rationally. Um, second, it is difficult. Um, now, I was a signals intelligence officer. I know we have to do secret things in a democracy. I've got no problem. Um, but it is true that we uh, we scream about what others do to us, and we classify what we do to others, and that makes it very difficult. Um, to actually look at this in a more in a more balanced manner. So let me push back on that because I, I think <laughs> oh, really you, I, I, I never I, thought I, you'd push back yeah, on that. Yeah, I know you're surprised, but the fact is we have been sending drones over a variety of countries' uh, territory for uh, 20 years, uh, and we have been uh, uh, firing missiles into that territory to kill people that we believe are trying to kill us. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, we're pretty used to it. That does not mean we would not react with enormous fury and Absolutely. with a lot of military hardware if somebody did that on our territory. And it's not that, that we um, uh, thought we were setting a rule. I, uh, the, the, the reason we have the hardware is so people won't do that to us. Uh, and so uh, I, I think part of what people object to is in this field, for a variety of reasons, um, adversary nations feel quite comfortable doing everything to us and maybe a little more uh, that we have done to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And we don't have the hardware or the software to make them think that that's a bad idea. Yeah, I think that's a really good framing. But I'll note, but I'll note first, what you were laying out is about power. Right, that we have to have the power to do this, and there's other ways to get them to not to do that other than power. Right, we were so used to working unilaterally in this space as well as with drones and in other areas, and now that's coming home to roost, and we and we find ourselves unprepared. Um, and so you know, but if we're going to accept that inner the framing of power, because we're talking about military aspects here, right, that's what I do like about persistent engagement. It's giving us a much better vocabulary in a much better way to be talking about, all right, what kinds of actions are we going to do, right? It's not about hackback. What are the ranges? How can this be stabilizing over time? And I think this is what the authors of this, Michael Fisher-Keller, um, Richard Harknett, Emily Goldman, and others have really helped us to get to this place. So they're, they're, what they have been saying is this persistent engagement is going to enable a stable a deterrence uh, uh, framework that uh, in the long run will allow mm -hmm. us, as, as you th say, I, I think, to tacitly negotiate with our adversaries over the things that, uh, you know, we don't like, but we're 
uh, tolerating and things that we are really angry about, which gets a bigger response from us in the context of the engagement. Uh, is that the theory? Yeah, they and it's kind of where the magic happens and where I think a lot of us are a bit more critical of saying, well, of course it makes sense that if you're disrupting their operations, then they're not going to be affecting us. Um, of course, of course, that makes sense. But it's in this transformation of, well, what we're going to do at the tactical level is magically going to be uh, give strategic stability that we have more cynicism, right? And I think that you're seeing more people come out. They say this is going to happen, not particularly through deterrence, although deterrence has some role. But, and actually, let me get back to tacit bargaining. Let's just say the different aspects here, right? So if we're doing a botnet takedown, if we're revealing what tools they have on, on virus total, that's what they're seeing as this defend for this persistent engagement. If we're getting into the Russian electrical grid so that they do something to our electrical grid that we've got a, a symmetric threat, that's using cyber for deterrence. That's not what they're meaning as part of this. Um, if we are taking down, um, uh, oh, Islamic State, right? U.S. Cyber Command against Islamic State called uh, Operation Glowing Symphony. Um, that's just plain offense. That's not deterrence. We're not trying to send them a message other, uh, you know, other than die, <laughs> right? The message, it, it's purely offense. It's not about signaling. It's not about deterrence. And so uh, what they're seeing is persistent engagement isn't deterrence. It's not about offense. So on they're seeing um, – But, the, but that's, that, for, that's not what John Bolton seems to be seeing. Exactly so, right? And so the theory in this – U.S. strategy of defend for it are all quite subtle about this is defensive, but you've got President Trump, you've got John Bolton, you've got even General Milley, um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, saying that, yes, the best defense is a good offense. And so that, that I think, it, our, our adversaries might see and, and our friends, frankly, maybe even more, are going to see that this is the U.S. is going to start throwing punches everywhere. So let me let me let me offer an alternative theory about how we got to this place and why there is this um, disconnect. Um, Cyber Command never wanted to just sit there, hunker down, and take it. Uh, that's just not the American way of war. Uh, we want we want. Uh, a, large expeditionary forces in enemy territory uh, <laughs> and uh, um, and we want to hit back and we believe in offense uh, uh, and so they they desperately wanted to do offense and then they had all these pipe smokers and thumb suckers at the National Security Council <laughs> who I who said oh I, you know what about deterrence and what about uh, you know uh, uh, the uh, tacit messages and and so they came up with this theory that um, persistent engagement would would produce all this deterrence and uh, uh, and and uh, tacit uh, uh, bargaining, um, and you know they they talked themselves into it. Uh, but what they really just were, were saying is, let us out of this cage. We've got to go fight somebody. I uh, and uh, they more or less sold it, but didn't quite close the deal by the time the Obama administration had left. And then they were offering up this kind of half a loaf to new guys who said, oh, just just, just go do some damn offense, will you? Uh, right. and, and so I, I, I do think this, this whole theory may have already slid past its sell-by date. And, and I 
one of the ways that I see this was almost like George Kennan and containment, right? He meant containment to be this kind of subtle strategy, you know, based on this deep understanding of the Soviet Union. And that's how I think the theorists behind persistent engagement and defend forward were seeing this. Um, whereas when it actually meets reality, uh, you know, deterrence became a lot of things. I'm sorry, containment meant became a lot of things that Kennan didn't mean. And I think that's going to happen with Defend Forward, right? It's going to end up being a, well, we just have to hit back. I mean, imagine it's two years from now and attacks haven't just gotten worse. They've gotten much worse. The people that are arguing for Princeton engagement are saying it is probably the most important thing that we have ever done. So you'd expect like anything other than a steep drop requires some kind of explanation from the people that are saying that this is going to be um, incredible. If it actually gets significantly worse, uh, my concern is that it's going to be like Afghanistan, right? They just say, oh, we've just got to stay the course. We've got the right strategy. We just have to hit back harder. We just have to devolve authorities down on the Snuffy Smith and you know, as far down in cyber command as we can. And we've just got to be more aggressive um, because I haven't seen a lot of – there's been measurement about at the operational level. Right. Yes, Cyber Command shot, and they and they had to keep their heads down. We stopped that engagement. Um, we prevented them from doing this. But is it actually doing what the promises made to the senior level of decision makers in this country? Is it actually going to live through that? I haven't seen much that's happening there. Yep. Or to put it another way, if you want an example of somebody who's defending forward in physical space take a look at Russia in Eastern Ukraine. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> How's yeah. that? And, 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 you know, how that's working out might turn out to be how this works out. At the same time, I think uh, uh, if things get worse, everybody's going to start saying a, a little bit more forward and a little less defending. Uh, and yeah. that's where we'll end up. Uh, Jay, this has been terrific. I, I feel as though I almost understand uh, defending forward and maybe how we got here. Uh, uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. And thanks also to Alan Cohn, Matthew Hyman, David Chris, Nick Weaver for joining me for the News Roundup. This has been Episode 307 of the CyberLaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. But don't turn off the uh, 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 recording yet because there's a couple of things uh, uh, that uh, you'll want to listen to, or maybe at least uh, – uh, We've got a poll on whether we should be having the interviews separate or tied to the news roundup. Uh, uh, but uh, more interesting, I hope, for people is I thought it would be fun now that we're all stuck at home to see if we had people who were around at noon Eastern on Mondays uh, who wanted to actually dial in by Skype or Zoom to uh, uh, to watch us put the show together live, uh, and uh, um, and then maybe even ask questions afterwards. So um, we are thinking seriously about doing this next Monday at noon. Uh, that'll be the thirtieth uh, uh, of March, uh, and uh, we're only going to uh, do this with a small audience of maybe. 
20 or 25 people. Uh, and we're trying to figure out which technology, but it'll probably be Skype or Zoom. Um, if you want to be one of those 20, you need to send us a note to, uh, at our regular uh, cyberlaw podcast at steptoe.com uh, uh, address. Uh, and uh, we're going to give priority to the stuff we hear first. We're only announcing this here. We're not going to put it up on the website. Uh, uh, so uh, send us uh, emails. And if you refer to a review that you have written of the show, uh, we'll give you priority. Uh, so that's the plan. That I, we're finally in, find a way to incentivize reviews. Speaking of which, Phantom Shadow, I certainly uh, did not mean to scant you last week. Uh, Phantom Shadow gave us a review that is kind of entertainingly abusive. Uh, uh, he says, Stewart hasn't seen a surveillance ability the government shouldn't have up until the exact moment it was used against a candidate who requested the FBI beat a hack his opponent on live TV. Does the whiplash still hurt his neck? This, combined with the faith, a term used because he can never cite data to prove his case that the technology companies have a vendetta against conservatives, makes him sound like a partisan hack. Yet to his credit, he invites people from disparate views and provides a good discussion of important security topics. In the end, this is an informative podcast that is well worth listening to, and it is highly recommended. Uh, uh, Phantom Shadow, uh, congratulations. You managed to combine just enough praise with uh, just enough entertaining abuse to, to uh, uh, make sure you got on the program. Uh, and uh, that's it. Please join us uh, next week as we once again provide insights in the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.